Shari, the podcast, co-hosted by the Governance Program at the Aga Khan University and the International Society for Islamic Legal Studies in cooperation with the University of Bay. Welcome to a new episode of Shari, the podcast. My name is Serena Tolino. And my name is Gianluca Parolin. And we have today with us George Warner from the Ruhr University of Bochum. Welcome, George. Thanks very much. Thank you for having me. George, welcome. Um, what do you like to do in your free time? I, 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 this, is, this seems like a heretical question. We're supposed to just be immersed devotedly in our work, so I don't know how to answer. I, I play the recorder badly sometimes. I, I hope that's irrelevant enough. Does that suffice? We, we believe you that. We believe you in that. So what next then? <laughs> I, gosh, I, I, does there have to be more? I, I'm, I'm not sure if I can offer more. I used to like going outside, but there's a storm today, so I can't. Is there something uh, specifically you like to do when you are in Bochum? <laughs> have you ever been to Bochum? Um, <laughs> I've heard about Bochum. <laughs> I, I, it's, um, uh, it's a difficult place to describe, but it's not a hive of... of diverse activities, I would say, but I don't wish to. It has an excellent university at its heart, so, so any travel to Bochum should really be focused on that, I think. You shared with us a chapter of your book, The Words of the Imams, in which there seems to be like a large interest on gender and gender hybridity. And I would like to hear us a bit more about that. Yeah, sure. Well, I, I, it's a chapter from a book about Hadith and, and Part of the concern of the book was just to explore all the different things that Hadith can do. One of the preoccupations of my work is something that I sometimes call compilation criticism, which is just the enterprise of, of looking at compilations, these things which are so common in medieval Islamic Arabic and Persian literature, where instead of just getting the author's voice in propria persona, instead we get the words of other people, anecdotes, gobbets, and of course, hadith, which he just arranges and just taking... So this is an authorial agency of a very different kind to that which we are perhaps more used to subjecting to critical analysis. And yeah, a goal of compilation criticism, as, as I apply in my work, is just to, to try and go against that critical grain and, and say that the compiler's authorial agency is absolutely worth taking seriously and exploring as as a medium of expression far beyond just the idea of the compiler as just a faceless tradent who is just, in adverted commas, transmitting other people's words. And, and yeah, one upshot of that is the exploration of how Hadith compendia inhabit and interact with various different types of genre, which is a really exciting area. It's, it's certainly by no means set in stone as yet how this works and what sort of, to what extent we can talk of genres of different types of Hadith compendium and what these genres might be. In the chapter I sent you, rather, that was really an exploration of how, how compilations of, of Shi'i Hadith in this instance are interacting with the generic spaces of Adab literature. In the chapter, I think you also make a strong argument and you contribute to challenge a bit this binary that uh, was previously assumed in the, in the research that it was a kind of secular literature, which is Adab, and then there is all what it is, um, religious literature, and it was almost a way to define Adab in contrast to uh, religious literature. Can you maybe tell us something more about that? 
Yeah, that's. Um, I mean, I'm by no means the only person to have challenged this, but yeah, over the past twenty years, a lot of people have increasingly worked on this. I suppose it's particularly relevant that my work is predominantly on Shiism, and Shi'is are obviously often speaking as as a minority voice, and so as a minority voice, one one needs to explore avenues to to fight one's corner, to to push one's agenda that that perhaps one's less used to looking for when one's examining more enfranchised voices. And so, yeah, in Shi'i literature in the 10th, 11th centuries, there seems to be, in many authors, an exploration of the possibilities of Adab literature, both as, as the kind of things we're used to reading Adab literature for in terms of looking at rhetoric and wisdom and all these things, but also as another avenue of asserting some absolutely religious claims, um, the, the standard religious claims of, in this instance, imami Shi'ism to do with the imamate and things like that. And this can range from, for example, in, there's a lot of amusing anecdotes in Adab Compendia, and in uh, these anecdotes often, you know, someone wins and someone loses. If the Adab Compendium is, is written by an imami Shi'i, the people winning are more likely to be the imams and the people losing are more likely to be the imams' enemies. But it can go much further than that. For example, Sheikh Sadduq has a, um, a book which I try and demonstrate is very much in conversation with Adab literature. And most of its chapters are ordered by numbers. So the chapter on number five contains the five qualities of the watermelon or the five ways in which prophets are like roosters. But if you go to the chapter that's to do with the number 12, surprise, surprise, it is mostly taken up by Hadith about how there are going to be 12 imams. So you know, we suddenly through this seemingly innocent looking and characteristically miscellaneous Adab frame, suddenly we get a burst of, of, of solid Shi'i doctrinal assertion that, yeah, by the way, there are 12 reasons why the sky is called the sky, but also there are 12 imams, and this is really important, and you need to know that. What is the connection that you see between this earlier work of yours and the paper that you will be presenting at the conference in May? I, I guess between Shi'ism and Hadith um, would be some pretty solid ground. Uh, I'm, I started working on Hadith for my PhD, but my interest in Hadith is, is, is very much to do with looking at the the wider spectrum of ways in which Shi'is explore, develop, enact, and represent their relationship with the imam, um, especially through text, but also through ritual. And yeah, Hadith is the basis of a lot of this, but there are, of course, other ways in which, in which that happens, both in terms of texts like devotional literature, especially devotional poetry, but also, well, legal texts often delineate ritual practices. So there are lots of interfaces between text and non-textual things, even when ritual practice is, is harder to reconstruct beyond the text. So yeah, I guess this brings us from my book, which was about Shia Hadith to my paper, which is about uh, Shi'i devotional literature. Um, A'amal literature is what I call it in the title. A'amal just literally translates as deeds, but it's a real cornerstone of, of 12 Shi'i devotional piety. And it comes to mean more specifically, the things you should do on a particular devotional occasion, such as the 15th of Sha'aban or Laylatul Qadr or whatever it is, the, the A'mal of, of Laylatul Qadr would be the, the devotional things you should do on that night. And this is, as they become a, a large part of, of 12 devotional literature. I was wondering if, if this helps you to sort of like redefine or give a more rounded representation 
of the um, scholar and their work. Yeah, I absolutely. One of the important things about Atmer literature as an object of study is that it's been relatively marginalized as an object of study. It concerns, as I've already described, supererogatory devotions in the main part, so not things you have to do. And this means both that from, um, in terms of the texts themselves, it is subject to less systematic deliberation than, for example, the fiqh of, of Hajj or Salat, where every detail is, is, is minutely discussed and debated. Obligatory, it doesn't look like that. It's, it's much more, um, I wouldn't say free form, but certainly less systematic. And, and correspondingly, I presume, that's why it's attracted less attention from scholars of Islamic law and yet this is a huge part of, of 12 Shi'i practice. The Amal literature is, is voluminous and describes these enormous, complex ritual practices, ritual practices which, which endure and are elaborated over hundreds of years. And in particular, when you're talking about Shi'ism, it is often precisely in the Amal stuff, this devotional stuff, rather than the more, quote-unquote, canonical rituals such as prayer and hajj, that's where the particularly Shi'i concerns of the relationship to the imam are enacted and worked out. So this is a really central and distinctive piece of, of Shi'i literature and, and a delineation of Shi'i piety, which just hasn't received that much attention. So yeah, absolutely. But yes, you, you, you talked about the, the role of the scholar in getting a more rounded view of that. What's, what's crucial about this Amal literature is that it, it's distinct in all sorts of ways from normal fiqh, as it were, but it's being written by the same people, that the first person from whom we've got a substantial extant book of this is Sheikh al-Ta'ifah Muhammad ibn al-Hassan al-Tusi. So, you know, a, a pivotal figure of imami fiqh and theology, these, these more established systematic sciences. He's also producing this stuff. And Amal, I think, correspondingly gives us a very different window onto not just the activity of the scholars, but in particular, because it's, it's delineating devotional practice, because it's going beyond the very formalized world of fiqh to something that's more in conversation with, with practice and the, the devotions of the believer. This is a different side of the faqih's relationship with, with the wider Shi'i community. When we're talking about, for example, pilgrimages to the imam shrines, we are not looking at something that has just been constructed from scratch out of Hadith. We are inevitably looking at something that is a, a combination of, of the usual sources of fiqh, such, such as Hadith and indeed various kinds of legal arguments, but also whatever it is that had organically grown up out of the, the ritual koine of the late antique Middle East and Near East around these shrines. And so when we look at 12 are scholars writing about this and trying to delineate it, we're looking at a conversation between what they think should happen and what people are actually doing and, and an attempt to try and, and ritualize that conversation into the normal discourses and, and frameworks of, of legal writing, even as they acknowledge that this is really a different kind of practice and a different kind of writing. And if you pick up a book of Amal literature, it just looks utterly different in terms of its form, in terms of its style, in terms of the types of things it tells people to do and the ways it does it. It's really, really different from what you see if you open the prayer section of a fiqh encyclopedia, for example. 
what role do you think that the audience plays in what a scholar writes and how and when uh, he writes them? It's very, it's very difficult to tell, especially in the in the earlier centuries. I mean, I, I um, for the most part, I tend to stop my uh, the period of, of my work before the Safavid period, which is when you get an immensely expanded volume of of um of different kinds of writing and the, the manuscript record expands so you you have all, have all sorts of kinds of evidence there that that you don't have in those earlier periods from from the later Basid right back through um into the yeah beginnings of 12 Ashiism in the 10th century so yes it's difficult and i was so focused on getting myself out of jail free by explaining that it's difficult that i've forgotten what the actual question was but uh, Yeah, it's tough, but you it can... It was about audiences, yeah. and uh, since it's also like a core concern of yours in the chapter on uh, uh, Sheikh Sadouk, it seems like it's a recurring interest in your research, isn't it? Yeah, well, I suppose it comes back to this idea of, of compilation criticism and just trying to work out what I believe I've tried to demonstrate and what I firmly believe are the very intricate processes that these scholars are doing when they put together a bunch of hadith about prayer or pilgrimage to the imam's tombs or whatever it is. And if you're trying to work out what the scholar is doing, what they're trying to do, you need to know who they're talking to. And yeah, the ways to, I mean, the easiest place to go is if they write you an introduction saying, this is why I'm writing this book and this is who it's for. Sometimes they do that and it's very, very helpful. Sometimes they don't and it's very annoying. But even when they do do that, you can't be sure that they're telling the truth. For example, if a 12 a Shi'i scholar says, well, I'm going to prove this point in this book. Just using the um, Hadith al-Ama, the, the narrations from Sunnis, does that mean they want to talk to Sunnis and persuade them that Sunni narrations are, um, are actually proving Shi'i ideas? Or are they talking to Shi'is who supposedly believe in Shia Hadith um, and don't need to be kind of reinforced by, by what the Sunnis are saying, but at the same time, are worried by Sunni polemics and so on and so forth and would be nonetheless comforted to know that actually the Sunnis are wrong and their own hadith really do back them up. But yeah, so it, there's a lot going on, but it's, it's, well, it, it's one of the vital first questions one needs to ask if, if one is really going to yeah, understand what a text is doing beyond itself. I think that was a very vague answer, but I hope it was an answer nonetheless. Um, yes. Yeah, thank you. Thank you a lot for uh, being with us, George, and uh, looking forward to seeing you in London. No, you're most welcome. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Thank you, George. Great to meet you both. Mm -hmm.